Today's sermon will be taken from Romans chapter 9, verse 1 to 29. This is the word of God, God's sovereign choice. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God had has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Thus says the Lord. Friends, let us pray for the preaching of God's word. 
Father in heaven, you are an eternal God that surpasses our understanding. And we are but limited humans, Lord, who cannot possibly understand what is in your will, but you chose to reveal yourself to us in your scriptures, Lord, and to reveal this great mystery to us for our sake. Lord, today we are um, meditating on a difficult doctrine, Lord, uh, things that search into the the deepest echelons of your mystery, Father. And as we do this, I pray you can give us a heart of humility, soften our hearts, Lord, and give us ears to hear that we may completely submit to what you have said in your word and that through it, we may come to glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, guys, we made it. Congratulations, 2020 is over. And now we're looking forward into a year where really things can only get better. And to start off this year, we're going to pick back up on our series in the book of Romans. And today we'll be studying one of the favorite texts in the Bible for we reform types. And it's a favorite for the reform because this text is one of the clearest expositions in the Bible of a doctrine that is considered to be the defining doctrine of reform theology, right? If we call ourselves reform or Calvinistic, most people would think or associate that we believe in this doctrine. And this doctrine is predestination, right? And more specifically today, we'll call it election. So just so we're on the same page, right? What I'm talking about, election is this doctrine which holds that God, in His infinite wisdom, before creation, before anything has happened, selected out of the human race that is completely corrupted and lost in our sins, some who He would redeem, bring to faith, justify, and glorify through Jesus Christ. In other words, this doctrine is saying that God chooses those who will be saved. Now, this doctrine is certainly not just one of the hardest ones to understand intellectually, but also the hardest ones to be okay with emotionally, right? And the church has certainly debated and divided ourselves over disagreements on this very issue. And it took myself a couple of years to really internalize and be able to accept this doctrine. So I don't expect any of you to suddenly agree with predestination after listening to this sermon the first time. And in fact, I expect there to be many questions about this. So if you do have questions, and, and if there was something that I said that was unclear, please you know, email us, DM us on Instagram, send us a WhatsApp, let us know. And if there are enough questions, we might even do a question and response session in the coming weeks. Okay. That being said, I invite us to all look closely at the text, have your text open if uh, possible, because I'm going to be referring quite closely to it, and we'll let the Bible speak for itself. And just a heads up here, right? Paul is going to explain the doctrine of election using stuff that happened in the Old Testament, right? Stuff in Israel's history. And if you're still exploring Christianity and you're not super familiar with the Old Testament, this might seem like a lot of information, but bear with me. Because if you do, I think we can see clearly that Paul points out at least three things about election in this text. Our three points. One, the struggle of election. Two, the reality of election. And three, the mystery of election. Let me repeat that. One, the struggle of election. Two, the reality of election. And three, the mystery of election. Okay, let's get into it. So point one, 
the struggle of election. So why would Paul even bring up the issue of election here in the first place, in this part of the book of Romans? So if you remember what Paul's previously been talking about in the book of Romans, we would just have been given the fullest and clearest explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the whole Bible. That though we humans are hopelessly, are lost and corrupted by our sins, while we were still sinners, though we were deserving of God's wrath, in our weakness, our Lord Jesus Christ died for us and reconciled us to God that we may have eternal life. Not only that, God also sent His Holy Spirit to dwell in us and to live with us, to help us in our weakness, right? Changing our hearts and opening our minds such that even while we live on earth, we are continuously being conformed to the image of Christ and being brought forth by the Spirit to glory. Such that immediately before our passage, Paul says that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in creation could ever separate us from the love of God. So from beginning to end, it was God himself who saved us through Jesus Christ. He began the process and he will finish the good work that he started in us. But some ethnic Jews who are in the church Paul was writing to, the church in Rome, might object to this, right? They might say, well, that sounds good, Paul, but what about Israel, right? They've read the scriptures too. They know all this. They were called by God, right? And now most of them reject the Messiah. Doesn't that prove that you can reject God's calling? So Paul anticipates his objection. But before he even gets to his response, he first communicates that he too struggles with this. That after searching the scriptures, Paul has not found the answer to this question to be a very pleasant one. In fact, verse 2 says that the conclusion he has to make about these things based on scripture gives him great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Even further in verse 3, he says that he's even willing to give up his own salvation if possible for the sake of his kinsmen, those who he called his brothers. And this struggle, friends, is not only a deeply emotional one, but also an intellectual one. Because of all people, Israel should be the one who knows the promises of God and be the first to embrace Jesus as the Messiah. This is what he's saying in verse 4 to 5. Israel was an ethnic group that was privileged unlike any other in the history of the world. Paul lists eight privileges there. Adoption, glory, covenant, law, worship, promises, patriarchs, and Christ. Right? We can't get into each one of them meaningfully now. But suffice to say that Israel was a people that God personally dealt with. God chose them as his own people, revealed himself to them, their ancestors, made promises to be faithful to them, gave them specific instructions how to live as, as his people and worship him. And the savior of the world himself came from one of their descendants. But despite all of this, the fact still remains that most of them reject Jesus Messiah and the salvation that is through him alone. You see, Paul acknowledges that the reality of election can be both a gut-wrenching and terrifying thing, right? Gut-wrenching because the thought that there may be those who we love dearly, people who might have shown incredible kindness and generosity, and even people in our own families and close friends who were simply not called to be saved and are destined for death. And if we really believe this, Genuinely, 
the appropriate response to this is to be uneasy, at least initially. See, and the problem is though, many of us reformed who come to believe this often communicate and discuss this doctrine in a way that is insensitive to the reality that this is a very troubling truth. Too easily labeling our Christian brothers and sisters who are struggling with this doctrine or have grown up in churches and traditions that reject this doctrine as unbiblical. Or heretics, I myself have been guilty of this and I initially began um, to understand the doctrine of election, right? That's why there's this thing called being cage stage reform. When you just became reformed, understand all of this theology and now you suddenly want to debate everyone into submission because you believe you're a more enlightened Christian and a more biblical Christian. While the doctrine of grace and election is more biblical, and we'll see later that Paul does make his case from the very Bible itself that the doctrine is true, but the posture that he adopts is one of anguish and sensitivity flowing out of a deep and genuine love for his brothers and sisters that is no less honoring to God than our understanding of doctrine. And this reality of election is also terrifying, right? Because if a people like Israel, who encountered God personally, who grew up in the faith and practiced the faith of God and grew up around the teachings of God, even if they are not elect to be saved, means that we can take no security in our familiarity with our Christian teachings, our religious experiences, our Christian family background, and even our participation in the worship at church. None of that can secure us of our salvation. Our righteousness and religiousness is not why we are saved. Okay, so friends, when we believe in the doctrine of election, it's not because it makes us feel good, not because it's necessarily comforting, though it can definitely be comforting, nor even it is it because it is what logically flows and makes sense, but it is primarily because if we take seriously what the scripture says and we study closely the biblical data, this is the only consistent conclusion that we can come to regarding how God saves his people. Okay, how so? So let's look at it. Point two, the reality of election. So in verse six here, Paul states his case explicitly, at least for the Jewish audience that he was writing to. Not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. So let me try to break this down. Okay, if we go back to the first book of the Bible, okay, the book of Genesis, specifically chapter 12, we see that God suddenly came to this guy named Abram, who will later um, be renamed Abraham. And out of the blue, God came to Abraham and made a covenant with him. And in this covenant, God said that he will bless Abraham and he will become the father of a great nation through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the people of Israel are the physical descendants of Abraham. So they believed that they were the great nation chosen to inherit this promise. They believe that God will definitely bless them simply because of their ethnic heritage. But Paul said, but hold on. Right? If we look at what actually happened in the Bible carefully, that's not the case. Because if you remember the story of Abraham, there was a problem with God's promise. Right? God said that he would make Abraham a great nation. But Abraham and his wife were really old and they didn't have any children. 
And Abraham and wife got pretty impatient waiting for God to give them a child because there was no one who was going to be um, his heir. So Sarah gave Abraham his servant as a wife so that he would at least have a child. And he did. And his name was Ishmael. And then, long story short, Sarah later miraculously had a child at age 90 and named him Isaac. Right? So, in verse 7 here, Paul refers to when God said to Abraham in Genesis 21 that it is not through Ishmael, but Isaac, that God will fulfill his promises. And this is not because of anything Ishmael or Isaac ever did. But it is simply because, right, after Ishmael was born, when he was around four, God came to Abraham and said that Abraham will have a son through Sarah and God's promises will be fulfilled through him and it is through this child his offspring shall be named. This is what verse 89 is talking about. That although both Isaac and Ishmael are technically physical descendants of Abraham, only Isaac was chosen to be his spiritual descendant, the one that is called offspring. Right? And Paul's point here is to say that God didn't fail to fulfill his promise he made to Abraham because Israel, I mean, because Ishmael wasn't chosen. But it is simply because it was God's will from the start that Isaac was going to be the one who will inherit the covenant he made to Abraham. Right? But one of the Jews there might argue, well, but maybe God chose Isaac because Ishmael wasn't even a legitimate child. He wasn't born from Abraham's legitimate wife. Right? So then in verse 10 and 13, Paul anticipates this and he replies, okay, but what about the example of Isaac and his own children? Okay, so as far as we know, Isaac only had one wife, Rebecca, and she gave birth to twins, Jacob and Esau. So according to the flesh, according just to the flesh and blood, there is no difference between the two. And Paul here makes his case in unmistakable terms that because of God's MO has always been election, before the twins were born, before they did anything good or bad, independently of their moral actions, God chose Jacob, the younger, over Esau, the elder. Right? In fact, Paul even points out how in the scriptures God said that he loved Esau. I mean, he loved Jacob, but hated Esau. Now, we must be careful here that not, not to assume the word hate here as the same thing as this modern notion, as this emotion of an animosity or, or hostility. Right? It's what the Hebrews mean when, um, when they prefer something over one another. Okay? But nonetheless, we can't sugarcoat the fact that it does mean that God preferred Jacob over Esau. Not because there was anything in Jacob that made him worthy of God's choice, not because he was physically, intellectually, or even morally superior to Esau, but simply because of God's gracious decision to bless him. So one theory that's commonly proposed throughout history uh, regarding this is that God chose Jacob maybe because God knows the future, God knows what Jacob is going to do, and God saw that in the future, Jacob will uh, be worthy of being his choice. But if we study the story of Jacob's life seriously, right, we will see that he is actually a mess too. Right? And he is by no means this moral example that we should be following. And it is exactly in those moments of weakness and failure that God came to Jacob, affirmed to him his promises that he made to his grandfather Abraham 
and gave assurances to Jacob of his faithfulness. So it doesn't fit the biblical narrative to say that God chose Jacob because he knew that Jacob would be worthy in the future. And in fact, we can't even say that it was Jacob's faith that made him elect. Because it was Jacob, I mean, because Jacob was chosen because the, God came to him and revealed himself to him and assured him of these promises such that faith can be produced out of Jacob in God, to God's promises. Okay, as Augustine says, God chooses us not because we believe, but so that we may believe. Okay, and we struggle to wrap our heads around this because we humans can't do this. When we choose something over another, it's either going to be because we see something that's appealing in this thing, right? As Tezar said in the liturgy, or it's going to be completely random, right? Like eeny, meeny, miny, mo, right? But like if you choose a spouse, for example, there must be something about the spouse that you're choosing that you value and you're attracted to such that you want to commit yourself to her. Okay, but God does not do this. He does not make decisions like this. God created everything. Everything is His initiative. So God exclusively makes decisions based on His own will and to accomplish His purposes. So there can be nothing within the creature or that the creature does that can influence any of God's decisions. So God chose Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau and those who are saved in Christ over the rest of the human race because of His free grace alone. We did nothing to earn it. Zero credit is given to us. To God be all the glory forever and ever. Amen. And this really should give us peace, right? Because if I take an honest look at my own life, not a day goes by that I fail to live up to God's standards. And if salvation really depends on my works, I would always feel anxious and afraid that I have not done enough to secure my salvation. Constantly worrying that God might get upset with me and stop blessing me and constantly feeling that I'm not good enough, right? And I don't know about you, but that, sounds completely exhausting. Now, if this is your first time hearing all this, right, what is a completely normal first response would be, but that's unfair, right? Why doesn't God just choose and save everyone? Paul again anticipates this in verse 14. And in verse 15 to 18, Paul makes his case by appealing to another set of events in Israel's past. Now from the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. Look at verse 15 here. Paul is actually there quoting from Exodus 33, right? When God said this after the golden calf incident. And if you remember, that was when Israel made an idol and worshipped it, right as God was talking to Moses on Mount Sinai, giving him their, uh, his laws right in front of them. Okay, something that God quite explicitly told them not to do. And something that was very very upsetting to God. So upsetting that God was willing to end Israel right there. But God, instead of ending them and punishing them for their sins, chose to show him that he is the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Then we see another case in verse 17. Pharaoh, in the book of Exodus, right? If we recall, Pharaoh also sinned against God. He enslaved 
God's people and he refused to let them go even though God repeatedly told him to and commanded him. And after Moses warned him, God even sent plagues to Pharaoh and ultimately his firstborn son had to die because of his sin, proving that God will by no means guilty, leave the guilty unpunished and he will visit the iniquity on the second and third generation. You see, but Pharaoh never repented, even though God clearly called him to. And the scripture said that God knew this would happen and allowed it. In fact, in verse 18, Paul points out that it was God who hardened Pharaoh's heart. And here again, right, we must not misunderstand that the fact that God hardened Pharaoh's heart does not mean God directly caused Pharaoh to disobey him or that God in some way stopped Pharaoh from repenting. Because if we read the narrative in Exodus, it clearly states that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So when God hardens the heart, it's what Paul said earlier in Romans chapter 1, verse 24, right? that God gave them over to the desires of their own heart. See, the human heart is so enchanted, is so attracted and prone to sin that left to its own devices, it will just continue to sin as much as possible. So if it's not for God's grace restraining our sinfulness, both in believers and unbelievers, we would sin as much as possible and eventually destroy ourselves. So when God hardens, He is simply loosening the restraint and allowing the heart to do what it naturally wants to do. So sin is still the initiative and the responsibility of the sinner. What this also means, friends, is that the moral decline of culture and the evil that we can see rampant in the world today is not by accident. It is not because we humans haven't tried hard enough to be better or that God got sick of us and abandoned us. But as with the evil of Pharaoh, it is allowed by God to come to pass in order to show his power so that his name may be great proclaimed in all the earth, which you will only see fully when Jesus our Lord comes again. So whatever happens though, our Father is still in control. Jesus will still return and the Spirit will lead us to glory. Paul's point here is that both in, these in both of these cases, God was sinned against and was angered. Yet God patiently restrained himself Right? With, uh, with Israel and they received mercy, but with Pharaoh, he was patient with Pharaoh only for a while, but ultimately allowed him to take the judgment that he deserved. See, and both cases here are said by Paul to be completely just. Because in verse 16 to 18, Paul says that God will have mercy on whoever he wills. Because you see, mercy is by definition something that is not owed. Something is a mercy because we get it when we don't deserve it. So saying that God is being unfair to only be merciful to some is in itself a self-contradictory statement. Right? God is free and completely justified to be merciful to all, to some, or none at all. Right? It's not a perfect analogy, but let's say I was really rich and I wanted to give up some scholarship to some underprivileged kids. It is completely within my right to give the scholarship to one kid or the other. It sucks for the kid that doesn't get the scholarship, but you can't say I was being unfair or immoral for choosing one kid 
to get to get the scholarship because I was never under any obligation to give any, either of them anything, even though this other kid might deserve it and need it just as much. And many of us, though, would assume that if God was really good and loving, He would be gracious and merciful to as many people as possible, if not all people. And it can be even more troubling when we think of the people who are truly kind and have truly contributed in our lives, yet are not chosen because they do not confess Jesus as their Lord. And the truth is, friends, Paul had very clearly earlier, though, in the book of Romans, taught us that none is righteous. No, not one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. So what we're entitled to is not God's mercy, but the penalty of death for our sins. We have no right to demand grace. So the fact that God doesn't just condemn all to die for their sins and chooses anyone at all to be saved is itself a testimony of how gracious God actually is. And in fact, whatever good that we humans can do is not because we are inherently good in ourselves, but it is because God graciously worked through us, restraining our sin and empowering us for the good of His creation. That it is possible for any good to come from a sinful heart and a fallen human. That's why, friends, when we Christians do anything good, we can't congratulate ourselves and pat ourselves on the back, but we have to say, Glory be to God, it is not I, but the Lord in me. So this, friends, is the reality of election that we clearly see in the Bible, and we must reckon with if we really want to understand how God's plan of salvation works. Just as how God chose Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Israel over Pharaoh, and us, the church, over the world to show them mercy and give them blessing, so too God chooses flawed and fallen humans who are as guilty as anyone out of everyone else to receive salvation and come to know Him. Not because of anything inherent within us, but solely out of His grace and for His purposes. And although on the one hand, this should lead us to be deeply grateful for what God had done for us, on the other, it can still be pretty troubling, right? Because if receiving mercy depends on God alone and that the evil that happened in the world is allowed by God to happen, is ordained by God, and even was a part of the plan, how can God blame us for our sins? Right? Aren't we just like pawns, like puppets at the mercy of God's will? Paul also anticipates this question, which leads me to point three, the mystery of election. Look at verse 20, right? Paul answers this objection. Are we to blame for our sins? Very bluntly. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? See, Paul here gets to the bottom line that we have no right to challenge God about how he does things. Because at the end of the day, we must not forget that God is the creator and we are mere creatures. He is the potter, we are the clay. God has every right to make with us and to do with us whatever He wants. We are not our own, but we belong, body and soul, to our Creator. 
So God doesn't need to explain himself to us. Who are we, even, that God should answer to us anyway? And Paul illustrates this difference, this creator-creature distinction in verse 21, using the analogy of a potter and clay, right? The fact that it is totally God's prerogative to create uh, one thing for uh, good use, for honorable use, and one thing for dishonorable use, right? The potter might make some fine china with this lump of clay or a toilet with this lump of clay. Likewise, God chose Jacob over Esau for honorable use and Israel over Pharaoh for honorable use. But Paul here in this analogy emphasizes the equality of those who are elect and who are not. They are made from the same lump of clay. If it weren't for God's work, those who are saved and those who are not would be exactly the same. Okay, and Paul goes further here in verse 22 and 23, basically saying that this scheme of things of God choosing who are saved is what would God, what would bring God the most glory. God, in his infinite wisdom, has decided what would fully reflect his character is to endure with patience with sinners who are not elect, these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, so that the elect, these vessels of mercy, can make known the riches of his glory. What this confronts us, friends, is the humbling truth that God's primary concern is not our well-being, it's not even our salvation, but it is his glory, that his name is proclaimed in all the earth and the riches of his glory known. Our salvation just happens to be one of the ways that his glory is made known, but it is not the only way whether it is by the just punishment of sinners or the gracious salvation of the saints, blessed be the name of the Lord. Right? And make no mistake, friends. People were not made evil by God. God, in fact, bore with great patience and restrained His wrath towards sinners. Nor are those who are elect forced by God to be in His kingdom. Right? Remember, we're already sinners deserving judgment. It is actually gracious of God to not have destroyed us already at all. Right? So for those who are predestined to be the ones through whom God shows wrath, God simply had not opened their hearts such that they're able to receive the truth and come to know Him. But instead, God lets them do as they wish. But there's an extra measure of grace for those to whom he gives mercy, whereby he opens our hearts, he softens um, our minds, he gives us ear to hear and changes our hearts of stone uh, to hearts of flesh that we may see him and appreciate the great love that he has for us and willingly follow him. No one is reluctantly dragged into the kingdom of God, neither is anyone forcibly shut, shut out, forcibly excluded when they want to be there. And you know, who it is that actually benefited the most from this plan of election? The Gentiles, the non-ethnic Jews, me, and every single one of us, I assume. Right? Because we had no business in receiving God's mercy at all. We were the ones Hosea was talking about, who were initially t told we were not God's people. The nations were not beloved by God, but in His infinite mercy, 
God chose to open the gates of salvation to every nation, tribe, and tongue. Whereby though we were once enemies of God and rejected by God, now through faith in Jesus Christ, wrought by the Spirit, we are now called sons and daughters of the living God. And why is it possible for us to be chosen? Because in the Old Testament, when God chose ethnic Israel, the sons of Abraham, to be his people, who were supposed to bless all the families of the earth, they rebelled against God, who gave them everything. But God was still faithful to his promises. And he revealed to the prophet of Isaiah that there will be a faithful remnant who will obey God perfectly and become a light unto the nations. Our Lord Jesus Christ is that true remnant. The offspring of Abraham through whom all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Isaiah describes him as this king who is called Emmanuel, God with us, who is also the suffering servant who will die on the behalf of the sins of his people so that this offspring can prevent us from the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah who was completely destroyed by God for their sin and rebellion. But now we have the privilege of receiving mercy to be adopted into his household, to glorify him, and enjoy Him forever. Praise be to God, friends. Who are we to receive such a gift? So, brothers and sisters, I completely understand if you still have many questions or doubts about what Paul is teaching here. This is a hard teaching. And if it's your first time hearing it, it's completely normal and actually expected that you would be kind of troubled. And you might even wonder yourself if you're chosen by God and actually meant to receive mercy. Well, friends, if you're worried, rejoice. Because that's a good sign that God might just be calling you. The sinful heart does not seek God on its own. And no matter what you've done, no matter how shameful your sins may be, there is always hope for you. Because God does not choose us based on what we've done or what we can do, but solely out of His free grace. So if you have not before, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And if you can genuinely do this, then God has already chosen you and you will be saved. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, who are we, O Lord, that you give us mercy Constantly, daily, we defy your commands and made ourselves more and more unworthy. But you are faithful to us. You are faithful to your elect. You have showed yourself to us that we can come to believe you and you've given us the Holy Spirit that we can come to love you, Lord. And I pray, Father, that we can always be thankful to you and give all glory to you to not be bogged down by our Christian performance, but instead be encouraged and energized to serve you ever more faithfully because of the infinite um, grace you've given us, that we are so undeserving, yet you are working in us and perfecting us unto glory. Make this, Lord, the purpose of our lives. May this year be a testimony to your shaping to us into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.